ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Those are some of the most famous words in American history. The I Have a Dream speech from the March on Washington 60 years ago, marking the anniversary of that historic moment. 
And at this moment, there's a new Bible study, Share the Dream, Shining a Light in a Divided World Through Six Principles of Martin Luther King Jr., authored by Chris Broussard, who's a sports analyst and commentator with Fox and uh, founder and president of the King Movement, and Matt Daniels, global human rights activist and founder of a nonprofit organization, Good of All, which is an organization that promotes human dignity across divides in a digital age. And so we have a lot to talk about uh, there. They're producing this video series with Harper Christian Resources in collaboration with America's leading African-American church publisher, Urban Ministries, and the King Movement, which seeks to help men and boys reach their God-given potential in every area of life and links principles and practical ways of uh, living out life based upon some of the key things that Dr. King taught. Professor Daniels, welcome to The Russell Moore Show. Thanks for having me, Russell. How did you become a Christian? Well, I grew up in Spanish Harlem in a precinct with the highest rate of violent crime of any precinct in the borough of Manhattan. It was a very bad place. My mother was a single mom working to support us. She got off at the wrong bus stop one night, was assaulted by four guys, ended up disabled, ended up on welfare. So I grew up on a welfare income with a bunch of Puerto Rican and Dominican kids, was not a believer, although I do believe God was protecting me at the time or I wouldn't have made it out of my neighborhood. Uh, education was my ticket out. I got a scholarship to Dartmouth and eventually to law school, but I I had to put my academic career on hold because my mother was terminally ill. So I went back to New York City. For several years, I cared for her while she was terminally ill. And the Lord used that to call my attention at a young age, relatively young age, to my own mortality. And I started seeking. And uh, the Lord led me to Tim Keller's church in Manhattan. Uh, I was fortunate at the time. The church was relatively small. Tim was very accessible. And so... I was really led to the Lord by Tim and, and a handful of people involved in the planning of that church. And, and that has shaped my trajectory. I have a fondness for common grace arguments. I have a fondness for reaching out uh, into the world with messages that are for all people. I am uncomfortable, frankly, when I go into some sectors of the church that are you know, somewhat self-segregated. I feel like we should be carrying this life-giving message to a culture that is going to die without it and got to have an early dose of that when I was a new believer in New York City. I did not know the Tim connection. It's, re it's really extraordinary coming out of uh, just last week uh, being at his uh, memorial service and just thinking again about all of the lives that his uh, work in New York was able to reach. That's, that's really extraordinary. Yeah, and it, the church modeled for me, I think, what the church is going to need to look like in the future. We are a radically countercultural movement, and we should embrace that and not build a subculture fortress and try to hide, but accept that, that that's our calling, to be agents of the kingdom in a culture that is lost. What, uh, what was the impetus behind uh, doing a curriculum this way and now? Well, there's the larger picture of where we are as a culture, which 
is something that causes great concern for me because I think we're spiraling down a path of division and polarization and violence. As you know, or you may know, 2023 will be the year of mass violence, the year in which there are more mass killings in America than any other year in our history. Notwithstanding our technological progress and our social progress, we're going backwards uh, rapidly in this area. I work internationally spreading ideas that have been proven to undermine efforts to recruit folks to various violent extremist movements. And I wanted to repurpose what I had learned internationally in the U.S. before we see things get to a serious and extreme level here, the way we've seen in some countries overseas. So I sought out Andrew Young, who I regard as sort of a Father Abraham type of figure. He's a, a great man of the faith who has lived a, a life of, of great service to the kingdom and to the country. And I had a conversation with Andrew Young. The seminal moment for me, really, was this discussion, this five-hour discussion with Andrew Young, when I realized that I did not know the spiritual backstory of the early civil rights movement, that in spite of thinking I was fairly well-educated, I had not been exposed to the spiritual dimension of the early civil rights movement, which is why they were able to overcome seemingly insurmountable barriers of violence, of legal, social, and cultural opposition. And that was the impetus for the curriculum, because I want that story to be known. People need to know the story. And those principles that worked half a century ago can work again today. We need them today. What surprised you about the spiritual background of the civil rights movement? Well, let me put it to you this way. I think that the historians who wrote the histories that I read were not trying deliberately to omit this central feature of the history. I think they didn't have the eyes to see it. So if you're a secular historian, uh, you simply don't record these sorts of things. But when I met Ambassador Young, I asked him, how did you do it? I mean, how did you overcome the violence, the threats, the monolithic resistance that you faced? And with characteristic humility, uh, he said, well, there weren't many of us. We were young. Some of us were pastors, but our churches were small. So we had to overcome by the Spirit. And I said, well, give me an example. <laughs> and he said, well, we'd be planning to go to place A for a rally. Someone would have a dream the night before telling us to go to place B. So the next day, in obedience to the dream, we'd go to place B. And there'd be a bomb at place A that would have taken out the whole leadership of the civil rights movement in its infancy. When that happens to you, you learn to be led by the Spirit. And I thought, oh, you were like the early church. Mm -hmm. <laughs> up against insurmountable odds, having to rely upon the power of God to overcome the darkness, because as we know, God wants to get the glory, right? So he puts us up against these odds, and then he delivers us, and in this case, delivered a nation from a long, dark night of 400 years of slavery and segregation, not perfectly, but substantially. And that story should be known, I think, to every believer in the United States, because it's the greatest example in modern history 
of the power of the gospel overcoming evil. And we need to harness those same principles again today. How do you think the civil rights movement, you think about how many people are involved and it's difficult to maintain a kind of discipline is not the right word, but a kind of cohesion of, uh, of all kinds of people who are involved in a, in a mass movement. And yet the King-led aspect of the civil rights movement certainly did that. H- how? You, you just didn't end up with people. It would have been really easy, I think, for people to morph over into violence or resentment or uh, bitterness, and that didn't happen. Yeah, I will give you two answers. Uh, the first will be a human answer, and the second a spiritual answer. So at the human level, um, never underestimate the level of strategic thought and discipline that went into everything they did. Uh, I'm always amazed when I hear the backstory of how disciplined and careful they were about what they said, what they did. They were constantly, as you know, being attacked from both sides, radicals in the black community who were angry at King for not embracing violence, obviously the white community. So there was a huge amount of discipline that went into the movement. Beyond that, I would say you just have to attribute it to the power of God, that they were doing something that was receiving the favor and blessing of the Lord at a critical moment. It was a redemptive moment for this nation, and that's got to be part of the explanation because really from a human perspective, they shouldn't have been able to achieve what they did. If you think about the the speech itself that Dr. King gave at the March on Washington in 1963, it's resonant with scriptural allusions and, and direct quotations, but bound up in the King James Bible. There are some people who would say that could work in the early 1960s, when there's kind of a a cohesively somewhat Christian-y American culture, but it wouldn't work now. Do you think that's right? If Martin Luther King were giving that speech at a march in 2023 instead of 1963, do you think it would be a more secularized message? I would say this, obviously Dr. King was a pastor Mm. and he was trained as a preacher. And so when he spoke, he spoke through a tradition and that was who he was as a person. That was part of his greatness as a leader. But what animated the movement are transcendent universal principles that I believe originate in the heart and mind of the living God who loves all of his children made in his image. Human dignity is not a human concept, it's a reality that reflects the Imago Dei. That spiritual nuclear engine that powered the movement is as relevant today as it was then, and it's the best hope for the future. Never underestimate the power of this dream that Dr. King died to give our nation. You know, throughout human history and throughout the world today, most of the power structures of our world, most of the societies and political systems are organized in such a way that you only get your value based on how you serve the dominant idol or ideology. So in the fascist system, in the communist system, in the Islamist system, you are only valued by the degree to which you serve the dominant idol or ideology. 
It is a beautiful and radical idea that originates in the heart and mind of the living God that you have as a birthright inherent innate dignity as a child of God. And that truth is as important and relevant today as it was half a century ago because it's rooted in something transcendent. I was hearing from a friend uh, yesterday, African-American pastor of a large multi-ethnic church, who said, almost everybody I know is growing disheartened. People who were really enthusiastic and thought we really are reaching a time when racial reconciliation in the church and the church leading and pointing to the outside world, what that could look like. It looked like that was happening. And now we're in a time when even the most basic uh, sorts of uh, conversations about race often end up with backlash and people starting to become really discouraged that anything can be done about that at all. How would you encourage people who are who are having that sense, which is, I think, a lot of people? Yeah. I, I need to explain to you the framework that I look at this current era through, because it's really integral to my answer to that question. And I'm going to share with you something that I shared in my first meeting with Ambassador Young. Um, when I first shared this with him, five or six years ago. It probably sounded more alarmist, um, but events, I believe, have proven that it's uh, actually reasonably accurate. At the time, when I shared it with Ambassador Young, he was vigorously nodding his head up and down while I was talking, so I know he agrees with me. I tell my students that there are precious few laws in politics, but those that operate are powerful because they emanate from human nature writ large, so they tend to repeat. One of the dynamics or laws of politics is what I call the polarization of extremes. I believe this is what we are now living through as a country. Let me give you a historical analog. Now, I'm going to issue a little caveat. Everybody who studies politics knows that comparative politics is an imprecise discipline. Okay, But with that caveat in mind, I'm going to engage in comparative politics. I want to talk about Germany in the 20s. Germany in the 20s is a highly cultured society, the nation of Martin Luther, of Bach, of Goethe. And yet in a strange way, the nation of Germany is increasingly being held in the grip of two increasingly violent movements at either extreme, communism and fascism. And there are features to this story that almost, well, that are not explicable, I believe, simply from a human perspective. Uh, for example, at that moment in history, the 1920s, no more than 20% of German people at most were active members of the communist or fascist movement. So you have 80% of the people trying to live their lives, mind their business, raise their families, and yet the future of the nation is hanging in the balance of this contest between these two violent movements. Second, a very bizarre feature of this moment in history, the two movements, which are supposedly polar opposites, feed off each other. They help each other to militarize. Every atrocity sparks recruiting by the fascists. Every atrocity by the communists sparks recruiting by the fascists. And so you get this militarization of the extremes while the middle is sort of sitting it out. And then one day, one form of militant evil crushes the other. You get darkness over the whole land and the nation of Martin Luther becomes the nation of Adolf Hitler. Now, I would submit to you that if you really want to understand this, you need to look at it from a spiritual perspective. So I use another analogy. I call it the puppet show of darkness. 
Imagine you're at a puppet show. You see two puppets up on the stage fighting each other. One is a prince and one is a dragon. But you go behind the stage. You see it's the same guy with his hands in both puppets. It's a kind of cheap theater, a, a pincer movement, if you will, being uh, hidden and concealed below the level of, of superficial reality by a unitary darkness. Think about it. National socialism, which was Hitler's term for his movement, was fundamentally similar to socialism as practiced by Joseph Stalin. These are movements that demonize certain groups of people and then promise to renew society by killing them. In due course, Hitler made good on that promise and millions died. In due course, Stalin made good on that promise and millions died. Now, we look at German history and we celebrate figures like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but he was the exception, not the rule. Unfortunately, the German Lutheran and Catholic Church really did not do their job well. We are Germany in the 20s. There are important differences between Germany 100 years ago and America today. Those differences actually militate in our favor. I won't go down the list, but we are better off than Germany was 100 years ago. Having said all of that, I guarantee you, we will go down the American version of the same path that Germany followed in the 1930s unless those who've been given spiritual sight by the Lord, who can see the puppet show of darkness, are willing to step up sometimes outside their comfort zone, sometimes at risk to their name, their reputation, and courageously represent the values that can hold the center, as Martin Luther King did at the cost of his life 50 years ago. We were put here for this moment. This is actually our moment, and we cannot let the psychological warfare of darkness stop us from doing the job that we've been called to do, and that is to shine a light that can lead this country away from that trap of the rising polarization at the extremes. We're in the early stages, so there's still time, but God's people have to get on their game. And the church, to the extent it can, needs to act in unity because we know that's the heart of the Lord and we know that power is unleashed when the body of Christ acts in unity. And Dr. King's principles offer a great roadmap for us to do that. Hmm. I could not- I apologize for the long answer. No, I could not agree with you more on that. How, how, when so many people are assuming right now that we're kind of victims of impersonal forces, there's nothing really that I can do. There's something generically that the world can do, but there's nothing that I can do. And so there's this sense of sort of resignation. How do you reawaken something different than that in that person? Well, I would say a lot of the struggle is perspective, right? I mean, think about what Dr. King faced. Think about what his namesake, Martin Luther, faced. Think about what the disciples faced. And then consider our situation today. You know, whenever I have a difficult day, I remind myself, no one is dragging me out of my home to lynch me or beat me to death in the streets. No one is bombing my office. I really don't have a right to complain Anybody who works internationally, as I do, is familiar with the horrific abuse being um, uh, endured by human rights activists around the world. So, really, we have to overcome the psychological warfare that seeks to neutralize us, and we need to embrace the reality that we are the only ones with the answer. The world is dying. The world is dying because it does not know the way out of this trap. The trap leads to destruction. It leads to death. So this is our moment. And we don't need to be uh, great in number. We just need to be great in our love for humanity and for the Lord, 
because the spirit of God does a lot of the work, right? The, the formula that unleashes power in the kingdom of God is 100% the Lord, 0% us. <laughs> and when you walk in that, uh, you have a kind of humble boldness uh, because on the one hand, it's really not about you. And on the other hand, um, it's all about the Lord. So I, I, let me put it to this way, Russell. I'm a pessimist by nature. Actually, if you did a personality analysis, I'm probably an extreme pessimist. That's a function of my upbringing. But in, in my faith, I've learned that the Lord will have mercy for the sake of a remnant. The remnant in this country is large, black, brown, white, and yellow. It's not well represented in our cultural elites, but it's large. And so we have every reason to expect that the Lord will have mercy. The lights will not go out here, but we cannot be passive. We need to be active. That's why we're here. And we should expect great things. And along the way, one of the great joys of this work for me is that I meet brothers and sisters in Christ from all these different communities that have come to this country to participate in this dream. And it's a blessing to meet them. Um, again, they're not well represented in the media, but they're everywhere. God's people are everywhere. We just need a narrative. And I think the narrative for this moment and for this day is best found in King. One of the things that I've noticed uh, recently is something I don't think I ever would have predicted before, which is uh, one after the other after the other of young, really online, white Christian men who are revealed to have, in, in some cases, pseudonyms and secret identities that are literally neo-Nazi. And in some cases, not even that, overtly partnering with Nazi organizations or using white supremacist uh, symbols or, or language. You've studied this a lot in terms of radicalization uh, around the world. What draws people to this? And is it is it true what it seems that young men seem more vulnerable to this than other people? Uh, let me take the first part of the question. I think that one of the challenges that the white evangelical church in America faces is that we have historically uh, overemphasized evangelism, discipleship, personal piety, and somewhat de-emphasized uh, issues of justice. This is a generalization. There are a lot of exceptions, but I will say that that has created something of a vacuum, right? The physical universe and the spiritual universe both abhor a vacuum, so the vacuum will be filled. And we shouldn't be surprised if we leave a vacuum that it's being filled by a bunch of isms. And it's always the case, Russell, everywhere in the world when you encounter these violent movements, in a strange way, they all offer the same uh, false promise of renewing society in a way they, they're, they're kind of a counterfeit gospel. They offer a, a, a logic and a, and a plan for you to go on a crusade to uh, heal society as we're supposed to be doing in a sense with the gospel. But in the case of these ideologies, they all have the same sort of dark logic, whether it's ISIS or white supremacists. 
First, you know, they denigrate certain groups of people, they dehumanize them, and eventually they destroy them. It's, it's a dark logic. The cure for that dark logic is to teach the dignity of all people made in the image of God. Dr. King, both his message and his methods were rooted in the cure for the disease. As you know, his philosophy of nonviolence was very deliberately grounded in his belief that even those who were trying to kill him were made in the image of God, and therefore he would not use violence against them. And by taking that approach in such a disciplined way, both with his message and his methods, he harnessed, I believe, spiritual energy that allowed him to have an outsized impact against these forces. And we're going to have to do the same again today. The challenge, of course, is it's easy to tear societies down and hard to build them up. The wake-up call for me as somebody who works in counterterrorism was the Buffalo Massacre. Are you familiar yes, with the details? Course, yes. So the Buffalo Massacre was racial jihad come to American soil. It is a formula that has been perfected overseas, landing in Buffalo. A young man is recruited online, weaponized online, unleashed to commit acts of domestic terror. He live streams it on his GoPro. His friends repost the video around the world on the internet to spread the toxic ideology of racism and hatred around the world. And when this happens, there are understandable calls to censor the internet, which I fully understand, but in a free society, you can't censor the internet enough to stop this sort of thing. So you really have one alternative, and that's what, what we've been working on, and that is you must inoculate hearts and minds before they're reached by these violent extremist movements as the best way to stop the ideologies from spreading. And how does one do that? One of the really wonderful features of the era in which we're living is that we have the ability through digital media to effectively reach almost every young person on the face of the earth. There are some exceptions, but, and mind you, various movements that are destructive are harnessing the full potential of the internet domestically and internationally to do precisely that. So we must mobilize these incredibly powerful resources for good. We must use digital media to reach young people with ideas that can inoculate or vaccinate their minds against evil. I've been working on this strategy for over 10 years with the founder of Disney Interactive, uh, but mostly internationally using an entertainment media, actually. We call it edutainment and have built an audience of over 40 million online in English and Arabic. Our fastest growing audience demographic, by the way, is young Muslim women who love our message of fundamental rights and human dignity, which is often not available to them in their culture. So we're just unleashing the power of the truth that's written on their hearts by God and using digital media to reach them. And I think we need to do the same domestically. So how does the Share the Dream project uh, work? Share the Dream is structured according to a pretty familiar format in its first iteration, uh, and that is six video-based lessons that teach the spiritual principles behind the amazing success of the early civil rights movement and call upon the church to apply them today. We have uh, study guides and uh, supplementary resources that groups can use, individuals can use in connection with the videos. And we try to be very practical. I was often frustrated as a new believer that there was less uh, practical instruction than I would have liked in church on some of the challenging calls of Christ. For example, we're all told to love our enemies. And uh, you know, I grew up in a very bad part of New York City, and, and when I came to Christ, it's very interesting. 
things that often bother people about the gospel didn't trouble me at all. They made perfect sense to me. But but loving your enemies seemed really crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. it's almost a recipe for suicide, you know? And you can't survive in certain parts of New York City if, if that's your life formula. And I remember one point crying out to the Lord for wisdom on this, and I was led to an approach that we teach in this course. It's very practical, actually. If you ever find yourself interacting with someone who's hostile to you, and their hostility is in some way related to your faith or your expression of faith, um, it's a two-step approach that works wonderfully. It's an example of what we teach in the course. First thing you do, you meditate upon the image of God in the other person. I guarantee you, no matter who they are, you can find something in them that reflects the image of God, their intelligence, their passion, the fact that they love their family, whatever. Uh, They have a a passion for justice, even if it's misguided. Well, that's from the Lord, right? Then, no matter what they're saying, no matter what's happening, if you actively praise what you see in them that reflects the image of God, you will disrupt the circuitry of darkness, which is trying to poison your heart with the same hatred that is in the other person. You know, we like to think of hatred as a spear that we throw at our enemies to slay them. But actually, as Dr. King pointed out, Hatred is a boomerang, and the harder you throw it, the more it destroys your own heart, because the number one object of the destructive impact of hatred is your own soul. So what, so what you're saying is the, the praising of that in that person is not a strategy to persuade that person. It is something to, to ground you and to, to recenter you. To stop you from falling into the trap, and then what happens, and I've seen it many times, the other person all of a sudden has to sort of take a step back because they're not expecting you to react in that way. And in those moments, the Spirit of God can work and open all sorts of doors. This is what's wonderful about, you know, the life that we live in Christ. We do part of the work, but the Spirit does the heavy lifting. And so when you're obedient to Christ in those moments, you can count on the Spirit to show up and I've had all sorts of amazing discussions with people who started out almost yelling at me by using that method. And that's the sort of thing we teach because Dr. King had to practice it in his life. You know, he was constantly being attacked and assailed physically and verbally, and he almost never shot back at his critics. He was incredibly disciplined and kind and loving towards his enemies. What do you advise somebody who would say, you know, I'm just, I'm just really hot-headed and when I get in a conversation before I even know what's happened, I just get triggered into lashing back. And it's almost as though I don't even have time to think. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I look, I have some of that in me, right? So the first rule is, if you're getting angry, shut up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very simple. Just shut up and wait until you can speak in some emotion other than anger because you're not going to do any good. I mean, there's righteous anger, okay? There's a place for that. But I, I'm talking about, garden variety interpersonal conflict. Yeah. And and shut up and listen. <laughs> yeah. I mean one of the things we know is that we have to maintain connection with people because loneliness is going to lead to people seeking other pseudo communities that often are very dangerous. How does one maintain connection with people who are holding ideas that we believe to be really dangerous? Yeah, I would say that um, this is where the advent of digital media actually 
has created a lot of problems in that, you know, that used to be um, you had to interact with people who were geographically and physically close to you and in so doing be exposed to all sorts of perspectives that, you know, were different from your own, typically. That was certainly the case when I was growing up. Now you can seek out communities digitally that are, you know, where you're going to get this echo effect, right? This, this mirror image of your own uh, views uh, constantly uh, reflected back at you. So then you go out into society and you encounter people who don't share the views of your tribe, whatever that tribe is, and you, you just sort of demonize them as they're bad because they don't, they don't agree with what is the obvious truth to you and everyone in your peer group. So that's an area where the body of Christ, by virtue of coming together, especially across racial and cultural boundary lines, can model for the world a better path. If we segregate into um, tribal camps, uh, the results are not good. A lot of uh, black Christians that I know are particularly exasperated by quotations from Dr. King's speech at the March on Washington, uh, because they will often say, you know, you have quoted back from white people the content uh, of our character line in a way that is used to imply that what Dr. King wanted was a colorblindness that ignores the realities of race and of the racial history in America and not consistent with with the rest of, of what he was doing, but as a way to sort of shut down any conversation on race. Do you think that that, that, that concern is warranted? I, I think that Dr. King's dream is a dream for all people, actually, I think that it's rooted in realities that transcend all boundaries, including race. And I think that the best way to understand the power of his dream and the movement that he created is to see that it is connected to the heart and mind of a living God. We are all children of God. I think that um, Dr. King was very frank and very bold in confronting racism in all of its manifestations, but I think his feet were rooted in a message that is for all people. And I think that's the best way for us to try to use what he sacrificed to give this nation as a cure for what we've seen in places like Buffalo. I mean, I actually feel my calling to some extent is to take Dr. King to the white community because they need his message as much as anyone, maybe even more than any other group. And if you are willing to do it, I can tell you this, for those who are nervous and afraid of what's ahead, the world needs the gospel, and if you're willing to carry it to them, they will listen, because we're increasingly going to see episodes like what happened in Buffalo. Uh, the violence is going to increase, the darkness is going to increase, and in the darkness, the light shines more brightly. So this is really our moment. Um, we, should, we need to be on our game. And how can somebody find out more information about the Share the Dream Project if they're thinking about maybe this is something we should do in our church or community or, or, um, or, or other or small group? Yeah, one uh, simple URL to use is just sharedream.org. 
sharedream.org, and that'll take you to the HarperCollins page, and you can check out some of the demo material and the endorsements. Matt Daniels, thanks so much for talking to us today. You're welcome, Russell. Thanks for listening. Links are always in the show notes for resources mentioned in this episode, including a link about how you can have a trial membership to Christianity Today. Be sure to subscribe to the program, send an episode along to a friend who might benefit from it, and leave us a review when you can. It helps other people to find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Russell Moore, and this is The Russell Moore Show from Christianity Today. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Hosted by Russell Moore, produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers are Abby Perry and Azrae Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Audio engineering provided by Dan Phelps. Video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hudson. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.